Hello, my name is Philip Mendoza Vieta. And my name is Max Weitzman, and this is the App Canary Podcast. Today, we'll be discussing amendments to Canada's Bill C-51 and the breach of the GOP's voter registration data. Okay, I'm going to see if I can like say something that's like semi-competent about this because I, I follow national security news somewhat and the Canadian media is like weirdly underfunded slash uh, weirdly seg- segmented this way. Mm-hmm. It, it's kind of very easy to feel that like some national security commentators are kind of sidelined. It's like this separate beat that like if you follow the beat you care about, but somehow it never managed to percolate into the opinion pages or the front pages. It's like, oh, well, like um, Justin Ling Advice occasionally writes for it, or what's the guy at the Globe? Colin something at the Globe. Matthew Braga uh, sometimes writes about this as well. There's like a handful of mm. like mostly dudes <laughs> uh, who write this, but it's the same like five people over mm-hmm. and over again. Anyways. So Bill C-51 was a Harper yeah, uh, Harper Bill. contract. So tell me, like, in in two tweets, what the Harper Bill C fifty one did. Terrorism is bad. We should loosen up uh, civil liberties in order to prevent brown people from doing more bad things. Okay, that's that's pretty much it. Um, Post nine eleven, the Western world by and large uh, increased police powers, um, and so I forget if they expired in the Canadian context because I vaguely remember that there was a bill that we passed here in Canada post 9-11. It gives cops like the ability to like um, uh, arrest you and hold you even if they can't like actually charge you with anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that was a power they had before and it might have expired. And this is like a new bill that they passed to like in- further enshrine um, uh, things for the intelligence agencies to be able to do here in Canada. Did this include the stripping of the Canadian citizenship? No, that was a separate bill. That, that was, was C-24, bill. I think. Okay. So, so C-51 expanded police powers, mm-hmm. and now we're rolling it back a little bit, or maybe not? So the full context is, like, uh, the Harper government did this in, like, 2014, maybe, ahead of, like, the 2015 um, federal election, right? Because mm-hmm. the conservatives are tough on crime um, and tough on brown people, as, like, 2015 turned out to be uh, about, was one of their themes. And uh, going into this, uh, predictably, you know, the left libertarian side was like, this is bad. You don't actually need to give people these powers to fight terrorism, right? So, like, what are you guys doing? It's not even, it's, it's worse than security theater, right? Because security theater is like, you stand in line, everyone wastes time, it's just a huge waste of money. But you're actually building apparatuses that enable the state to harass people, destroy dissent, to like fundamentally weaken our democracy. Uh, for like no practical gain, because it's not even clear that all this increased state, state surveillance actually stops uh, real right. attacks. Because if it did stop real attacks, they would tell you about it. Yep. Uh, they would not secretly like pat themselves on the back for a job well done. They would like you know have a huge photo op about like all these brown people that they stopped from killing other people. Right. But like it, it doesn't happen because they can't do it. It's something. It's really uh, effective retroactively, and the ways of like you know, dissuading people from saying things that are like, anyways, that's more conspiratorial. I, I, I'm actually not sure about that argument because mm. one thing that it is used for a lot is um, when they use uh, parallel construction right. to catch like drug dealers and stuff. So what is parallel construction? Uh, so parallel construction is when uh, somebody, you know, the, uh, the, the national, the security services uh, scan your emails and find that you're selling drugs over email 
And then they tell the police services, which is like a separate, it's a totally separate agency. But the police services, instead of getting a warrant based on the fact that our spies write your email, will uh, basically tail you until you do something stupid and then pull you over and like, lo and behold, you're a drug dealer. And then the story that they tell in court is like, this car was looking, looking suspicious and I didn't single it out for any reason. But in reality, they were told by the the, um, the intelligence services. So it's when they use some technique that would not hold up in court because it's illegal to surveil people without a warrant. So they're surveilling you anyways. And then they find some other reason to catch you. And then that would reveal the information that they already know about you. Mm-hmm. So instead of like revealing that, like we were um, monitoring, surveilling this person without a, wa- uh, without a warrant, um, they say like, oh, there was a traffic stop that, you know, that happened to have all this cache of documents right on the, on the right on the, right out in the open where the cop could see it and blah, blah, blah. Uh, so uh, you, you don't actually hold, think that the argument that I was going about like holds. I do think that a lot of people are arrested because of, um, because of intelligence services doing mass surveillance. I don't think that there are a lot of terrorists. No, totally. No, no, no. Yeah. I think lots of people rolled up, but none yeah. of them, very few of them are terrorists. Yes, but I would say that they don't care about that as much. <laughs> because they get to arrest lots of people yeah they they well they get to like do the thing that they're doing right um mm-hmm. so c51 2014 2015-ish i mean the ndp came out and they're like let's just get rid of this like that really seems the easiest thing we could do get rid of it don't let cops roll people up for no reason for like i think it's 30 days or potentially longer without having to charge you it was just like grab bag of different powers that the cops and the intelligence services wanted. And I don't want to do a bad job by trying to recite it because I don't know mm-hmm. all, the, all the different provisions off the top of my head. So the NDP was like, let's get rid of this, guys. And then the liberal party is like, well, you know, we're afraid of looking soft on crime. So we're not going to we, we don't want to have that discussion. So we're just going to say that we're going to preserve the status quo, but like get rid of the bad parts. Right. So it's like, you know insert larger criticism here of the Canadian Liberal Party being like conservatism of a good face, right? With positive vibes. And so they won the election, as we all know. And now finally, like um, 2017, they're rolling out like their updates to Bill Bill C-51, the things that they had promised that they would do. They said that they would soften it up and they release another grab bag of things that like edits the act and like provides certain funding and reshuffles how the agency is supposed to work. And so amongst the provisions that they have is... um, They've defined what kind of offensive role the intelligence services can take. So the use case being promoted here is that like Russian hackers are uh, attacking the Bank of Canada or something or election services. And uh, we know how to stop them if only we counter hack them. Right. Um, And so now they're uh, entitled to counter hack, which is something they were not able to do before. Um, This seems like a bad idea. Uh, What do you think that um, intelligence services should be allowed to do offensively? it doesn't seem like the kind of thing that they should be able to freelance and by freelance i mean like you turn around and and before you know it they've been like engaging this vast industrial phishing scheme where they've been Mm. like hoovering up all the emails of all four national well there already are hoovering everything up right like i i see them as i see as two possible things that you can do and one which is that you hoover everything and the other is that you uh place implants on specific high value targets right and let's say in my ideal utopia uh, all police are replaced with social workers. I'm not sure if you can replace all uh, intelligence services also with social workers, because uh, you're on this. You're you know you're playing on a global stage. And I, I mean, d- d- these are different criticisms. Right? No, 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 no. But but hear me out. I think that there is something to be said that uh, 
while it is wrong for intelligence services to um, have these like vast troves of data about everybody, may be uh, a good idea. Like if you believe that spying is something that a nation is like, if not morally in like practical terms has to do, it may be the best solution to just have your intelligence services uh, try their damnness to like have an implant in like Angela Merkel's uh, office, but not scoop up the communications of every German citizen. So my counter to that is that it skews their incentives, mm-hmm. right? Because then in order for that to be effective at all, they have to hoard vulnerabilities, right? Because like they need to be sitting on zero day that they can deploy. If not like, I mean, granted, a lot of it could just be straight up social engineering, which does not require elaborate. Yeah, phishing, phishing, you don't need O-Day for Fine, phishing. but like somewhere in that toolkit, they're going to have O-Day. Sure, right? but they, uh, they do. They do now, right? But this is what I'm saying is by like sanctioning, sanctioning that use, you're incentivized to not patch it. Right, because an O-Day is useless if it's no longer an O-Day. Mm-hmm. Right, O-Day for anyone who doesn't know this uh, means zero day, and it just means that something that has not a security vulnerability that has yet to be discovered publicly. Uh, so basically, if you find a flaw yourself that no one else knows about, that's you know there have been zero days since it's been discovered. <laughs> I mean, partially, I think that our work with AppCanary shows that O-Days maybe are not as valuable as people make them out to be because nobody patches. Yeah, the trick is to patch it, and yeah. like there's some nobody patches publicly disclosed vulnerabilities. It's true, but like, uh, you can hack Donald Trump's phone without any kind of O-Day. because it just hasn't been updated in forever. Because yeah, like Androids never get re- give or never get cycled up. Uh, that's a whole separate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, totally true. Right, like it's part of our the company line is that like it's the hundred day that you got to worry about, not the zero day. Um, but that's like. That's for the average Joe kind of thing. <laughs> if you're a random security company that is going to get like drive by, drive by owned by someone uh, scanning the internet, th- I think that line is totally valid. But if you're like some bad dudes with like million dollar budgets who sit around to like think of ways to like mm. break computers, uh, I think that we would be better off if they were disclosing those vulnerabilities and sitting on them. And the best case for this was uh, the Shadow Bears. Was it Shadow Bears? Shadow Brokers? Shadow Brokers. Yes. Uh, bears because they're Russian. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Shadow Brokers published that trove of this NSA toolkit that had zero day. Yeah, but it had like one zero day and it had like a bunch of old bugs. Right. But then they, some other people took the zero day and then made WannaCry. Yeah. Right. And WannaCry just took the world by storm. Right. So I'm going to unpack this a little bit. Yeah. Shadow Brokers, if I recall correctly is a front name for some group of people who are presumably Russian because they put on this like fake, they put on this affectation in their medium posts that like makes it seem like broken Slavic kind of writing. It makes it look like some ES, some ESL person from an Eastern European country that wrote this fucking blog post. Uh, let's not try to attribute Shadow Brokers to any, they're, they're somebody that hacked an NSA staging server. Mm-hmm. Like we know that. And they tried to like get maximum publicity out of this fact. They tried to like hold an auction for the tools, but then nobody bit because no one wants to pay money for it necessarily. I think also nobody wanted to uh, like Bitcoin is uh, <laughs> pseudonym anonymous, but not anonymous, and nobody wanted to pay Bitcoin for. I would bet. I would bet like against the FBI tracking a random person off the darknet. 
I'd be like, okay, probably, you know, you can buy LSD off like some broker mm. on the internet. That's fine. But I would not bet against the NSA. <laughs> well, also <laughs> wanting to unroll that. The, the entire, like the entire internet is going to go after whoever sends Bitcoins to the shadow broker's address. Anyway, so there's this group that has a series of like blog posts where they reveal all this, all these tools that they found off an NSA staging server. And one of the releases a few months ago contained a previously undisclosed vulnerability for Windows that Microsoft... Microsoft did not know about. They erased the patch it when it came out. Mm -hmm. uh, they're like, oh shit, this is zero day. They patched it. But then some independent third party went through this cache and then wrote WannaCry, which is the Python name given to this ransomware that like took the world by storm like a month ago. It was mm -hmm. May. Yeah, I distinctly remember. It was like mid-May and then suddenly all these hospitals throughout the world and like basically any un a whole variety of unplugged, unpatched Windows machines who had not applied the latest patch got hit by this, and then their entire, dr the entire disk drive contents were encrypted uh, in exchange for Bitcoin, they would send you, um, they would send you the key, right? And so this is an example of like, you're incentivized to hold these zero days mm -hmm. that are, could actually be highly destructive when actually, if we're talking about like, defending Canada, <laughs> defending Western civilization. You want to be patching these things. I think like enabling offensive capabilities uh, creates a vast disincentive to actually like upping your defense. It'd be much cooler if you had these people like spending all this time and effort like fixing things. So I don't remember the numbers exactly. And I, I, I agree with you philosophically in practice. So there was this... Um, this paper released by the Rand Corporation called, it had a great title, Zero Days, Thousands of Nights. Right. Did we talk about it on a podcast? I don't think so. No, I, I, I gave a talk about it um, at a meetup. But so what they did is they they partnered up with a unnamed uh, exploit vendor that had developed and uh, bought a bunch of exploits that they were like selling to governments and stuff. And they basically got access to their entire like Git repository with full history which allowed them to do a bunch of analysis such as uh, like they would see when a vulnerability would be dis, uh, like discovered and then how long it took these people to write the exploit. They could see like the effectiveness of individual security researchers. Like there was one person that was just like pumping out exploits constantly. There was definitely like a 10x exploit engineer on their team. Right. And one of the things that they looked at is they looked at these exploits and they wanted to see have any of, sorry, they looked at the vulnerabilities and they want to see have any of them been discovered by another third party. And that report, like I don't remember the exact statistics, but that report definitely came to the conclusion that if you have a bunch of ODE, uh, the probability that someone else will find it is actually pretty low. Yeah. Which is unfortunate because if it's high, then that would, I mean, it like you're incentivized to hold it. You can just hold on to it because the odds of someone else taking advantage of it are so low that like, mm -hmm. and in fact, these things age well, right? Like they'll. Yeah. They, I don't remember. They had like a, they, they calculated the half-life of vulnerability. So basically what happens is there's, there's like. It was um, measured in years too, right? Yeah. It was like pretty long. There was, I think that what happens is like, um, I think you have like something like a 5% yearly churn. Hmm. It's pretty good inventory wise. Yeah. So this is going back to what you're saying is I think that like, if we allow our intelligence services offensive capability while limiting their um, massive data, passive data collection capabilities. I think that's a way of, you know, allowing our, allowing our intelligence services to like 
you know, fulfill their mandate of um, spying on people without compromising the security of normal people. Because if they're OD, they're being held on to to do like one targeted attack. Is that so bad? So I think, as I understand it, your argument here is that in practice, it doesn't matter that they found Ode because the odds that some other group has that found the exact same vulnerability are so low that in practice, hoarding vulnerabilities will not affect you because if you get owned, it'll be through some other vulnerability that they found independently. Or, I mean, in the case of WannaCry, right? Like the NSA hoarding this vulnerability was only bad because they were incompetent enough to get hacked by the shadow brokers. Yeah, I could see that. I could see that in practical terms. I think that that is an effective counter argument. Mm. Like, well, in practice, like, <laughs> in practice, these are things that no no one takes advantage of these. So you're not going to, you being patched through this O-Day that CSIS found is not really going to affect anything because CSIS is the only group that has it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, not because they're so hard to find. I guess I, the, the there's a lot of O-Day, but I think it's sparse in that, like, the O-Day that I find and the O-Day that you find is going to be different. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, I mean, we found this, like, back in our security auditing days, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you would find different bugs than I would find, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess the attack surface is so vast that the odds of you finding the same hole are so tiny. Yeah, yeah, especially if you're like, you know, if if your target is like literally every piece of software. Right. Um, um, okay, so maybe them being uh, allowed to enga- engage offensively is not like the worst thing compared to like their massive data collection. I mean, I would like to, I would like it if that was a trade-off that we actually like as a society agreed on. Okay, so in exchange for you to like go hog wild and fish like the German finance minister <laughs> yeah. please stop surveilling everyone. You got to turn off that data center in the desert. Interesting. I mean, so one of the other components that they came up with is um, they are, uh, the liberals recognize that some kinds of dissents are like democratically valid. And so uh, they added a provision. One of the things that they changed in C51 is they added a provision for um I think the gist of it is if you are engaged in quote democratic activities like dissent or artistic expression, um, there should be a new set of safeguards to prevent your data that that is picked up on you while Mm -hmm. you're engaging in those activities from being shared across every other government agency. So in theory, I guess there's, there, there's supposed to be some kind of safeguard for like coding surveillance that happened while you were protesting. Um, and then preventing that information from getting shared to like the cops, the RCMP, Five Eyes, uh, the uh, the border, the U.S. Border Patrol, etc. How they were gonna do yeah. that is really not clear. I guess hypothetically, this should mean that they're gonna infiltrate fewer like protest groups, um, but I don't see that changing either. I mean, I guess they would have to code all of the different, like they have to code all of the protester stuff separate from the rest of the data that they're gathering. Um, and so we're talking about this in like the show warm up, right? But mm-hmm. uh, one thing that I was ranting about is whenever you hear things about the states, right? Like in the post Snowden era of all the disclosures that we found out of the actual powers and capabilities of like the, the quote deep state and what they're able to wage for almost every one of those revelations, it turns out that like the Canadian, the Canadian equivalent has roughly the same powers if a smaller budget uh, but f- uh, less oversight yep at least the americans have like a secret court 
that <laughs> overviews every decision. I think it turned out that like maybe sometimes uh, CSIS gets overviewed and they got a hot water last year, I believe, where it turns out that they were legally sharing all this data with Five Eyes on like all this Canadian data. Five Eyes being the five Anglosphere countries that decided to share all their like uh, intelligence data with, right? The States, Canada, UK, New Zealand, Australia, I believe. I wonder how much New Zealand contributes. They're, yeah, interesting, right? They're, they're tiny guys. Yeah. But, um, hey, maybe they got great signals intelligence. So basically, Canada's really bad uh, because they share their data everywhere. And it's terrible. And it doesn't seem to be getting better. And it's really hard to quantify the risk. But I've had this half a blog post in me for some time uh, on something that I call like privacy leak, which is what happens when this indiscriminate sharing of databases you know, just fucks you over in weird, unpredictable ways. So the, the case I was talking about earlier was um, concerning this nurse at George Brown. So some dude was studying to be a nurse and applied to work at um, Sick Kids here in Toronto. And when it came time around to do a background search, it turned out that at some point, this guy's roommate five years ago had been a drug dealer. And so therefore, uh, you know, the background background search did not turn up empty and therefore this person was banned from working with kids, effectively terminating their career before it even started uh, because they need this qualification in order to work in hospitals and that's like three three to four years and however many thousands of dollars that tuition costs that are just totally void and useless to them because the Toronto police had a note that this guy happened to live with someone they thought was a drug dealer. Yeah. Um, there's this case of like some woman trying to cross into the States and being barred because the cops had prevented her from committing suicide one time. Right. So like they just ran her name across the database and it came yeah. up that she was prevented from committing suicide. Someone called the cops on her while she was having a moment of crisis and that made it into the database. There's examples of like the Canadian no fly list where it's impossible to get your name out of it. If mm -hmm. there's some other idiot somewhere in the world that has your name, you're screwed. You're going to just get harassed every single time you fly. Ultimately, the only way to fight this is by not collecting the data in the first place. Because once it's shared, you can't unshare it. It's really hard to like go through your database and be like, what is the source of this data? I'll, like, Let's delete it. Let's make sure that not, let's retroactively clean it. And a lot of this data is collected by private companies, yeah. not just uh, the government, which is a good segue into another privacy leak that happened. Somebody discovered that a Republican-aligned um, analytics firm had their entire database um, open somewhere on Amazon that you could just like log in without any credentials if you knew the IP or the URL. So this company called UpGuard had part of their um, content marketing operation is to have someone like research the internet and like find things and write about it, which is really cool. It's the yeah. kind of thing you want, right? Yeah, it's, it's um, awesome. And it's, it sounds like a really fun job. It sounds like a really fun job. Like I wish my job was to just yeah. like write about cool shit all the time and like hack into things, etc. Uh, so this person uh, spends their time um, scanning the internet for open databases uh, of various kinds and seeing what's on them. I believe that that is my impression, having read the article that they put out. Yes. Uh, and so what they and then they write about the stuff that they found. So like I've occasionally done this and I found some like. You know, I found some like security cameras. Yeah, that, that's the classic one, right? Like there's yeah. all these in webcams that are enabled that just like you can control them, look at them from the internet. The, the most interesting one that I found is that there's this um, there's this Saudi Arabian uh, company that is like 
half like they they do they're like half search engine half like equivalent to turn it in which is like the essay plagiarism detector so i found like their open database and i found a bunch of like uh i guess high school essays in arabic uh which was cool but not nearly as interesting as this person's finding so this guy is trolling the internet and then he finds this open amazon s3 bucket that happens to have this republican aligned and data analysis company's database on like basically every eligible voter in, in yep. America. About 198 million people. Something like that. Yeah, the full the full 9 yards, um, a terabyte worth of data and like something like 50 columns on this database or 100 columns or something like that. Some like a lot of fine-grained detailed information about every eligible voter that they know about and this is effectively the nuts and bolts of the of the GOP's data operation. So the this thing company. that elected Trump uh, maybe who knows? There's there's some conspiracy theories about that that other people have covered in detail. Because like there's that company that knows like wh- how you're gonna vote based on your Facebook likes. Uh, yeah. So this is this is the same stuff. Like this isn't this isn't Robert Mercer's company, but right. it's the same. Because what it what it is it's a variety of different databases that are all tied together by the same key, which is like your Republican ID, right. which is like a GUID. And they have, you know, your, like, zip code, they have your name. They have, like, who they think you're going to vote for. But they also have, like, 50 different categories of, like, do you think Obamacare should be repealed? Do you want, like, a stronger foreign policy? Do you agree with America first? And it's, like, gets, like, super fine-grained. It's, like, it's, you know, it might even be, like, how do you feel about the Ukraine question? Right. Um, And so there's just, this thing was just sitting there, uh, this open S3 bucket. Guy found it. He's, like, this is bad. Yep. This has like they look themselves up in the database and they're like, huh, this is this is accurate. Yeah, this, this is how I feel about the issues. This is how I feel about these issues. And it's kind of creepy because it's this like huge privacy leak. Yeah, it's it's almost everyone in America over the age yeah. of 18, right? So um, what I wanted to ask you about is so the way that um, the way that this database scores how you feel about the issues is a predictive model. Like they obviously can't say for every American whether they filled out a survey about how they feel about America first. But what they do is they take the survey data and try to correlate it and try to guess how you feel about issues. So the context for this is that when Max found this article and then he sent it to me, I believe, and then he posted this thing and I was just like unsurprised. Mm -hmm. You didn't feel that it was that important because you could get as much from your zip code and age. Well, so the the, the particular particular bit of text that was highlighted, Mm -hmm. I think it was like, oh, when we looked through, um, we looked ourselves up and then... uh, you know, it predicted accurately what they who they're going to vote for, right? And uh, my point behind this is that like you can get eighty percent of the way there by just knowing your age and zip code. Yeah. Um, this thing is going to have your like Facebook likes and your Twitter follow graph and a bunch of other stuff in it too, right? Right. But like, I don't have like deep expertise mm-hmm. with this. I have some like passing familiarity of like how these things work because like in twenty fourteen, I I myself built a political voting CRM um, for a Toronto municipal campaign. So we collected information on like hundreds of thousands of eligible Toronto voters. Um, the Toronto municipal campaign is actually the largest um, uh, election in Canada because. Uh, we don't elect presidents here, right? We elect individual MPs. And so in terms of like someone caring about individual voters, the largest um, election you'll have is from individual writings, which max out at like 150 people, 150,000 people, sorry. Whereas like congressional districts in the States are usually about 600,000 people. How big was your database? In, in you know, it, it was like a few gigs maybe. No, it was larger than that. No, I mean like how many people? 
let's just ballpark it and just say like every eligible voter. I, I'm just curious about like in your experience with building these kinds of things, like were you doing predictive modeling at all? Like, well, so I never had the time to actually advance into predictive modeling, right? Because mm -hmm. like uh, it was just a hilarious like cluster fuck of like different tools that were not really built for something mm. of this scale, right? The reason why we ended up doing this is because there were no off-the-shelf tools that would really work, that really worked for this use case, and so we ended up just building just a raw database. And I got into the stage where I was actually considering layering in different kinds of data from different sources, right? Um, and so in Canada, funnily enough, our privacy laws are too strong to actually uh, make the kind of database that you have access, uh, easily accessible in the States be cheap. Mm -hmm. So you can do this if you have a ton of money. But we also have like very strict financing limits in Canadian elections, so we didn't have the money to buy into the databases that would have made like interesting analyses. Mm. So, but I actually spent a considerable amount of time uh, working backwards from like the census data to retrieve demographics and build a demographic profile, and then try to score you based on the data that we've already mm. collected from you. Uh, because we had like an army of volunteers knocking on people's doors, right? And so I have I have a passing familiarity of how this stuff would work and how it would function. And I was a little blasé about the nature of this stuff because um, <laughs> a lot of this is like demographically determined. It turns out, like yeah. we've effectively uh, geographically separate uh, segregated ourselves such that we only live in areas with people who are like minded. And so I can tell you, Max, that like as uh, you know. A, a guy under the age of 30 with your postal code, it's almost, you know, the probability of you voting for this particular party is like a lot higher than probability based on everyone else, just because this is where all the votes are collected. If you work backwards from election results from the last election based on like your census area, I can build a tr really trivial, crappy statistical model on like which way you're likely to lean. Yeah, but if, I mean, if this is like, if this is like, if you're scored on like 50 different questions, like, you're starting to get like bigger than the than the number of oh. eligible voters, right? Like two to the fi like two to the fifty is a lot. Yeah, totally. No, no, no. This like a lot of individual bits. Yeah. But I guess I'm blasé. Not that like this data isn't scary. I'm blasé in that like you can get there most of the way with a lot less data. Like you should still be like freaked out about it. Yes. Uh, I I'm not like don't be freaked out about it. But it's more like your date of birth and your postal code is already uniquely identifying. Yeah. There's no one else in your postal code with your date of birth. Right. But that's all, like good for 98% of people. Yeah, that's that is that is very true. Right. So like that's already enough to finger you. If, like if I know what day you're born on and I know like probably in the first three letters, it's probably like a high probability that it's you individually because we can go into the, how like Canadian postal codes work because I mm -hmm. looked that up in order to like do this kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, so in the, in the United States, there's a large variety of like survey data and demographic data and like ad analytics data mm -hmm. that you that are not available for sale or very expensive for sale in Canada that are very cheap in the states. Um, and so are you, they expensive in Canada because of our privacy laws? Uh, partly because of that, partly because of uh, low density. It just the privacy law thing doesn't make sense to me. Like why? Like something's either legal or legal, not more expensive because um, of laws. It's just less aggressively collected, is my mm. understanding. Um, so it takes more work to like uh, gather the stuff together. There are fewer customers for it. Okay. Because like you're limited in how you can use the data more mm. accurately, etc. And so what happens? What you can buy as a prepackage uh, from an ad analytics provider is saying people in this people from these postal codes with this range of income, with these like demographic characteristics of these ages have bought this product. 
mm-hmm. right? They have lots of data like that that are semi-anonymized. And so you can take um, for like all sorts of different products, for all sorts of different preferences, you can probably buy information on individual surveys where they like, okay, for this people of these characteristics tend to have these preferences. Mm-hmm. And so you can build all of that and correlate them with other with other attributes. So the way that they find this is that they know where you live, they know where you live, they know um, how old you are, right? Because that's basically public information. They know what people like you are statistically likely to like, slash potentially they've correlated you to some, I mean, <laughs> game over if they if they can correlate your name to your Facebook profile because like any amount of information to get out of that just like automatically builds like so much more fine grain detail. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, Partially, so these statistical models, my understanding is a lot of them work on like collating all these different databases that have different kinds of like demographic information that are correlatable. And then you can drive inferences from this, or like this broad pseudonymous, like semi-anonymous like data mm-hmm. that like is just like widely available and cheap in the United States. And so my blase attitude is just like, you can get most of the way there pretty easily. It's like definitely bad. <laughs> it definitely represents like a lot of money that got poured into this. But in the grand scheme of things, it's like, yeah, it's really easy to find out a lot about you, I guess. I guess that's the takeaway um, from that. The weirdest part of that article, and this was totally a throwaway sentence that uh, the, the the article said. And by the way, we also found this um, just text file that contained uh, the text of a bunch of Reddit comments in the same trove of data. That's the one that I think is really interesting. Hmm. Like actually tracking people down to the Reddit comments? Maybe, or maybe it was like Reddit comments that were seeded by like the same team. Like, I don't know what this uh, analytics firm had with a ton of Reddit comments, but I feel like those comments were probably meaningful. Interesting. Yeah. 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 There's there's a lot of things you can you can work backwards for it. I mean, these things will like um, influence field operations. So at the end of the day, when like it's election day, there's very little science on how elections work because you can't have like it's very hard to build experiments. Um, so there's a lot of like after the fact, like thinking through it. Um, but basically the stance that it seems people really operate on is you can't really convince anyone. The point of an election is to identify people who already like you and then convince them to go vote for you. Or as the like uh, the the Donald Trump team strategy included, and they were like public about this, identify people who don't like you and convince them to stay home. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's very easy to go into like illegal territory if you adopt that strategy because they're very strong and varies in the states. In Canada, they're very strong laws against like, you can't give false information, for instance. Well, I mean, yeah, the, the classic like rat fucking technique is uh, you... You poster uh, the, the you you poster neighborhoods that are going to vote against you with posters saying like go vote and then the day after the actual election. But I mean, it's like it's not. I mean, I I've joked about this concerning my relatives, right? Be like, if you have old people in your life, right? You should just next time you have like Thanksgiving, you should be like, yeah, Uncle John, ugh. Like the government is just what's the point even of participating in the democracy? Like why why vote? Your vote's just wasted. You know, it's really just like just better suited to staying home on election day. Uh, and so very similarly, if you're like a left leaning organization or left leaning campaign, uh, you could probably just identify everyone who's old in your district and like, you know, just like grab swag from your opponent and just like be rude to their faces. You could just like flyer them uh, being like, what's the point in voting anyways? Uh, wouldn't you rather see your grandchildren? There's a lot of stuff that like 
with that 80% demographic data, like gets you 80% of the way there. Pro if you had the resources to rat fuck someone, you could probably engage in this kind of shit. So like in, in Canadian elections, everyone's just starved for resources. Mm -hmm. But since the, uh, the, the Georgia sixth congressional district election just happened yesterday, which dates us exactly in what moment of time, but they spent $50 million total for this one congressional district. $50 million is more than the Liberal Party in Canada in 2015 for the federal election spent contesting 338 seats, right? And that was because that was the longest Canadian election in living memory. If we roll back to 2011, which is a normal-sized Canadian election, uh, that is more money in Canadian dollars than all three major parties spent. In uh, 50 million Canadian dollars, you mean, or 50 million U.S. in Canada. Converted to Canadian dollars. That is more, that is about the same amount of money that the Conservatives, the Liberals, and the NDP spent combined federally. So, like, that gives you, like, a difference in the order of magnitude. Yeah, I mean, it's because there's, like, a lot more dark money. And, like, if your opponent, like, if, if your opponent is spending an order of magnitude more than you, you have to start. Well, I think that the, the takeaway from that is that Americans love democracy. And yeah, like, they, they love, they hate voting. Hate they, voting. Hate, they hate voting. They never do it. Uh, uh, most of them don't. But, but they love democracy. Yeah. Um, oh, there was a point I was driving towards with this because of the amount of money that's involved. Um, you can drop like a billion dollars. In, like, oh, so the, the point of this is that like, yeah, in Canadian ops, you're kind of starved for money. But if like, if you're blowing 50 million, if you're blowing, if you're John Ossoff and then you have like $20 million that you're spending on this, you could, you could probably engage in some rat fucking. You probably have some like leeway and like the most expensive race of all time to like do some like underhanded but legal things. Anyways, you don't need a lot of demographic information to pull that off. Thanks for listening to the App Canary podcast. You can visit our website at podcast.appcanary.com. And my name is Max Fatesman. And my name is Philip Mendoza Fieda. This show has been produced and edited by Katie Jensen. You too can hire her by visiting katiemariejensen.com. If you liked our show, please rank us highly in iTunes. Take care. <laughs>